Hello, you're listening to the Duke Law Podcast from the Duke University School of Law. I'm Kate Evans, Clinical Professor of Law and Director of the Duke Immigrant Rights Clinic. This episode has been selected from our regular schedule of guest speakers, panel discussions, and scholarly conferences. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. I am so thrilled at the turnout. Um, Thank you, Luis. The student board members of Duke's Immigrant and Refugee Project have been phenomenal partners in organizing this series, um, and I'm grateful to be able to count on the support of so many of my colleagues um, and students here um, in bringing these events together. We've had a a great response across Duke University and from advocates and scholars nationwide to today's event, so we, we will be recording that. Um, And I know uh, the folks in our communications department plan to develop additional materials based on today's discussion. We just want you to be aware that that the discussion today will be recorded. Um, I could not be more excited to kick off our fall speaker series with this panel of powerful voices for racial justice. At Duke Law, we've been having a series of conversations on the calls and means to challenge racism throughout the criminal justice system, including panels on policing in America, the movement to defund the police, the work of our new Wilson Center on Science and Justice. Uh, We have discussions beginning tomorrow with Michael Tiger, who served as defense counsel to Angela Davis and is a leading advocate for reform, as well as the cutting edge work of advocates in North Carolina to fight incarceration and disenfranchisement due to fines and fees. Today, we have the opportunity to connect these discussions with similar calls for reform in immigration enforcement policy. I'm honored to introduce three leaders of change who will talk about how at the heart of both movements to abolish ICE and defund the police is a conversation about who is incarcerated, who is criminalized, and how we end the practices that have killed far too many people and endanger thousands upon thousands more. Beginning first with Sian Gorumu. She's the legal director of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, known as BAJI the first national immigrant rights organization formed in the US to bring black voices together to advocate for social and economic justice for black immigrants. Sian is also the founder and director of the Queer Black Immigrant Project, a black radical lawyering initiative which provides comprehensive legal representation to LGBTQIA plus black immigrants while creating a safe space for clients to regain control over their voices through a storytelling project. QBIF's mission is to create a systemic response to meet the legal and social needs of LGBTQIA Black immigrants, while elevating the narratives that illuminate the global injustices of state-sponsored homophobia and anti-Black racism. Sian has received recognition for her work at the intersection of of international law, immigration, and racial justice. She is a 2018 Forbes 30 Under 30 Law and Policy honoree, OK Africa's 2019 Top 100 Women honoree, and NYU School of Law's 2019 Outlaw Alumna of the Year. Rinku Sen is a writer and political strategist. She was formerly the executive director of Race Forward and publisher of their award-winning news site, Color Lines. Under Sen's leadership, Race Forward generated some of the most impactful racial justice successes of recent years including Drop the I-Word, a campaign for media outlets to stop referring to immigrants as illegal, resulting in the Associated Press, USA Today, LA Times, and many more outlets changing their practice. She was also the architect of the Shattered Families Report, which identified the staggering number of children in foster care whose parents had been deported. Her book, Stir It Up and the Accidental American, theorized a model of community organizing that integrates a political analysis of race, gender, class, poverty, sexuality, and other systems. She writes and curates the news at rinkusen.com. And finally, Sejal Zoda is the legal director and co-founder of Just Futures Law, a transformational immigration lawyering organization that works to support the immigrant rights and racial justice movements in partnership with grassroots organizations. With almost 20 years of experience in immigration, Sejal has litigated and argued several high-impact decisions on behalf of individuals and amicus curiae. She has argued before the Second, Seventh, and Ninth Circuits, as well as the North Carolina Supreme Court and Appeals Court. Most recently, Sejal was the legal director of the National Immigration Project of the National Lawyers Guild, where she spearheaded creative legal strategies in the areas of immigration enforcement, crimmigration, removal defense, civil rights, and post-conviction relief. 
We will hear comments from each of our speakers in turn, and then we will open up the discussion for question and answer. As Luis mentioned, please feel free to submit your questions via the chat function, which will go to him and I directly, and we will collect those and get through as many as possible during our discussion. With that, we turn to Sian Goramu. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kate. Um, it's an honor to be here participating in such an important conversation about the work behind the movements to abolish ICE and defund the police, particularly during this incredibly unique moment where we're beginning to hear new promises being made for changes um, to policing and racist corporate practices in response to really what has been generations of grassroots organizing work and uprisings demanding real anti-racist democracy. So I think before I go further, I should probably begin by contextualizing how I am personally entering this conversation. I am a Black immigrant attorney, deeply entrenched in the immigrant rights and Black Lives Matter movements. Um, like many of my clients, my family and I fled our home country because we were targeted by the government due to my family's political affiliations. We were only able to find new life in this country because we were bold enough to imagine um, a new life where we would be safe from persecution at the hands of the government. And it was not an easy journey um, and it was not a simple journey because once we arrived in the US, we found ourselves confronted by widespread anti-blackness, which we'd never known of before, and a racist immigration system, which were only new battles that we had to develop tools to be able to combat. So as a foreign born black activist and an immigrant rights lawyer, I think, um, my practice nurtures and claims my own power in immigrant communities that I was brought up in, and now those are the same communities that I serve. So I'm constantly trying to channel my individual expertise and power into my practice, where the primary tenet is that migration is a human right. In my work, I center the humanity and dignity of all immigrants, and especially Black immigrants, who, like myself, have all too often um, been devalued by systemic racism in many different forms. So bringing together um, my lived experiences in a sub-Saharan African country that tortured and wrongly imprisoned its own people to resettling in the US, which engages in many of the same human rights abuses, it's clear to me why there's an international dimension to the core of the abolitionist movement. Um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, if you're not familiar with her. She's a brilliant scholar and a teacher about abolitionist movements. Um, she teaches us that the combination of organized violence and organized abandonment has produced so much vulnerability in every single country where inequality is deepest and creates situations that are ripe for mass incarceration and detention of people like we see here in the US and many other countries. So in my work at the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, um, we are constantly striving to highlight the international dimensions of the abolitionist movement while simultaneously working to free um, Black migrants from cages, both in Mexico and the United States. Similarly, in my role as the founder and executive director of the Queer Black Immigrant Project, um, we're constantly striving to eliminate those same barriers, but for the specific group of queer and trans black migrants. So in contrast to liberal legalist practice, I think both Baji and Cupid are um, what I've labeled um, black radical lawyering initiatives that rest on the assumption that no fundamental societal change can come about solely through legal reform. Um, rather, it's organized, politicized, Black mass activism from below um, aimed at revolutionizing an entire system that can achieve the sort of real social change that we seek in order to be liberated as Black people. Um, in both spaces, we're working to sort of reconceptualize what it means to be an attorney by radicalizing lawyer 
partnering and engaging in really meaningful abolitionist work that looks like many different things at different times. I think we're in a space in 2020 that we just did not imagine we'd be and we've made more progress than perhaps um, we imagined we'd make in such a short time. For many people, I think um, much less attorneys and you know, students who are on their path to becoming attorneys, abolition can be a very scary word because it means tearing down old systems. But at its core, abolition is about imagination and imagining another way, just like my family and I imagined another way when we left our home country. Um, Ruthie Gilmore teaches us that abolition means so many things to so many people, but if there is one thing that abolition is, it's the presence of life, um, as opposed to the conditions of organized violence and organized abandonment, abandonment that we currently live in and that many of us um, fled seeking refuge from, um, you know, we fled in our home countries. But in practice, this means that abolition is not merely the absence of prisons and detention facilities, but it's the presence of vital systems that support the well-being of all people. At both Baji and Qubit, um, we're aligned with the teachings of Ruthie Gilmore, as well as Angela Davis's group Critical Resistance, which provides us with a three-part holistic framework for abolition, which is dismantle, change, and rebuild. Um, so by dismantle, we mean dismantling oppressive and punitive systems, practices, and tools. Um, when we speak about change, which can be so many things, and it is, um, it's changing power and the living conditions, particularly of the most vulnerable folks. Um, and when we rebuild, that means we're building solutions to harm and we're building systems of life-affirming support and care, which many of us currently don't have access to. So this is not a linear framework. It's all three things happening at once. So we're building as we're tearing down. Um, based on my own personal experiences, including, you know, family members of mine, I understand that people from vulnerable backgrounds whose lives are constantly threatened by structural and sometimes imminent physical violence, um, which is often black and brown people, think that the solution to that vulnerability might be more policing. Um, but as a nation, we're beginning to collectively find that to be incorrect. And I think also the history of criminalizing people in this country proves that to be incorrect. Um, I'm, I'm sure most of you have a grasp of um, what policing has looked like for folks in this country, but just very quickly, um, I'll, I will say, um, because I think it's important to center and affirm, you know, the history of Black folks in this country, but criminalization and specifically the act of turning Black people into criminals um, through the U.S. criminal legal system is rooted in post-slavery America. Um, I think many of us have learn that if not from Michelle Alexander, then you know, a series of other scholars who's really who really brought this understanding to um, mainstream America, right? So after emancipation, there were a series of policies and laws called the Black Codes that were implemented to preserve the system of slavery. And these laws allowed for local authorities to arrest and convict free black people for minor infractions. Since then we've seen the criminalization of black folks in the US be used as a tool throughout the years. Um, to mention a few, there's Jim Crow, the war on drugs, and broken windows policing. Um, to maintain a system of white supremacy, despite the fact that racism is never acknowledged in the creation and enforcement of these laws. So then as we begin to turn our attention to immigrant populations, we find that the same racist policing that incarcerates Black people in America also affects Black immigrants as well as immigrants of other ethnic backgrounds. Local police are some of the biggest feeders into the detention and deportation systems. And Black immigrants are more likely to be incarcerated by ICE because of racial profiling by local police. And ultimately, more than 75% of Black immigrants are deported because of over-policing and racial profiling in Black communities. More generally, um, Black immigrants who have any encounter with the local police may be at risk of deportation. 
At Baji, we've studied very closely how the government's increasing focus on immigrants with criminal records disproportionately impacts Black immigrants, um, who, as I said before, are more likely than other immigrants of other regions to have criminal convictions or at least to be identified through interactions with local law enforcement. So as a whole, we see an incredible amount of resources and investment going into criminalizing Black communities regardless of the crime rates. And when we get more police in our communities, we also experience more deportations. Um, for example, my own community of Brooklyn, um, we are subject to heavy policing. Um, and that is a community that's made up predominantly of a lot of Black immigrants, although, you know, gentrification is doing its thing and moving us around, but it's still heavily a Black immigrant community. And as a result, we're getting um, racially profiled more often ending up in removal proceedings and ultimately deported at higher rates. Despite all of this, um, I always try to highlight the, the work and resistance that I see on the ground that gives me motivation to keep moving and for organizations like Baji, not only to continue doing the work, but um, to draw in more people so that we're a larger collective of folks fighting against these systems. Um, we see black immigrants um, in detention facilities continue to be at the front line of resistance and subsequently, unfortunately, retaliation in detention for speaking out against um, the prison and deportation systems. I just want to highlight two quick examples so that we can keep that as a source of energy and inspiration moving forward. Um, in February 2020, when a group of African asylum-seeking women at the Hutto Detention Center in Texas staged a sit-in protest um, um, to address medical neglect in the facility, ICE retaliated and transferred them away from their support systems. At Baji, we worked closely with the women in Texas and then continued to um, utilize our volunteer attorneys to follow many of those Black women to the other detention facilities that they were transferred to so that we could continue to be a source of support and stand in solidarity with those women. In June 2020, when Black immigrants at the Mesa Verde Detention Center in California led a hunger strike in solidarity with BLM, ICE attempted to undermine their leadership in a false um, press statement, which had um, a lot of racist undertones about how the peaceful protest was ultimately organized. Um, for me, as an advocate in this field, I'm inspired and energized by um, Black immigrants and immigrants of all colors whose experiences both as victims and uh, resistors to violence at the hands of the state sort of serve as a living testament of our collective duty to fight for our freedom. Um, and I think that despite the range of attacks that we see um, both to our immigration system and the ways in which um, innocent Black folks are constantly dying at the hands of the police with no sort of accountability or justice at the end of that, um, we can continue to look to um, these same individuals as the reason for us to continue this work and to really fight in solidarity with them and pull in our resources and all of the um, the must muster sort of all of the energy that we have to continue fighting for these robust movements, both to abolish ICE and abolish the police. Thank you, Sian. Um, appreciate those comments, and I look forward to um, getting back to, to, to all of you with a discussion about how your work influences each other, too. Um, with that, I want to turn to Riku Sen. Thank you so much. That was really inspiring. I'm going to talk about two things in my initial period. The first one is um, what are the factors that strengthen uh, the coalition and the alliance and the kind of sticking together of immigrant communities and Black communities, um, which are, of course, as Xiang just pointed out, sometimes the same community. Um, and then I want to talk a bit about how we um, change the story and the narrative around these kinds of punitive practices and institutions and the um, 
uh, consistent violating of human rights that they do. So, um, so a quick communications strategy lesson for my part. So in terms of um, stronger coalitions, there are three things that I think we need to be paying attention to and doing as much as we can. The first one is that there actually has to be an actual relationship. We need to invest energy and time and money and um, strategy chops into actually generating friendships and community between these different communities. This is a very, very deeply segregated society, the United States. People tend to live in separate neighborhoods. Um, and even in a workplace where you might have lots of different kinds of people working, they're, they're, they could still be segregated in different kinds of jobs. So the first order, I think, is to, um, is to figure out how, more and more how activists, attorneys, service providers, um, places of worship, uh, you know, recreation clubs, how we get people into actual proximity with each other so that they can um, build ties, build binding ties. One of the things that's been really encouraging to me recently is the way that mutual aid has re-entered the world of community organizing, which had stopped. That is the way it used to be. Immigrant communities, Black communities, uh, Indigenous communities, we took care of each other when the state abandoned us or when the uh, state allowed um, vigilantism or other attacks or direct state attacks on us. We, we kept each other housed and fed and educated and um, spiritually sustained. So that stopped for about 60 years, over the last 60 years, but uh, it's making a great comeback. And I really, really support that because organizing takes courage and you have more courage if you're not alone. And mutual aid reminds us that we're not alone in our suffering and that someone else uh, cares about us as we care about them. Uh, second thing for stronger relationships is to educate people on the systems using as little jargon as we possibly can. So um, using visuals and memes and um, panels like this and just really trying to talk in everyday people's language, um, which is not to say we can't use the words that we use, but um, but often you want to break the words down and explain what they actually mean. Um, so I, I have found in my own work in communities that um, people don't really know how the systems work that well. So lots of immigrants who haven't been here that long don't realize the ways in which the criminal justice system is stacked the ways that new laws are created to make criminals out of people who previously weren't, um, those kinds of things, the, the way that um, uh, bias works in court among juries and judges. So they just, they don't know. Um, and what they see on TV is not teaching them um, that. And similarly, um, I, I find uh, people who have a, um, stake in ending mass incarceration often don't know anything about deportation rules after convictions and after incarceration. So uh, educating our people. And then the last thing is really figuring out ways to organize together around common issues. So, um, you know, whether that is in New York, a coalition of police reform organizations that included many immigrant groups just got repealed uh, 50A, which was the law that protected police officers from having their records uh, be public and shared. So got rid of that um, and has been uh, fighting really hard to get ICE out of Rikers Island, which is the holding uh, center jail in, in um, New York City. So really just organizing together. A couple of resources. Uh, I think um, one of 
one encouraging alliances between Southeast Asian groups and Black American organizations. And you can check out the Southeast Asian Freedom Network for their statements on Black Lives Matter and on police reform. Um, there's a great organization in Wisconsin called Freedom Inc., which is a coalition of Black groups and Southeast Asian groups in the state of Wisconsin who um, do civic education together, fight on local issues, have a food pantry, again, take care of each other in a relationship. Uh, and I would also turn you all on to the Solidarity Is podcast, which um, is designed to bring people of color into closer relationship with each other. Uh, all right, so here's the quick and very, very quick and dirty communications strategy um, lesson. When I am making a plan that I want to result in changing the way people think about something and taking an action based on that shift, then there are three things that I have to figure out. Um, most of us just think about the message, what's our communications message. The message is the last of those three things. The first thing is I'm gonna figure out a frame for my demands, my campaign, my slogans, um, the, the people I wanna recruit. The frame is always about values. It's, it's usually at a fairly high level, like, patriotism or family or justice even, those are all framing kinds of words and framing language. Frame is your big idea. The next thing I'm gonna think about is the narrative. It's the story that's going to fill in the frame. You can think of it exactly like a piece of art. The frame contains uh, the beauty, but the beauty itself is the images or the stories or the films or the memes or the quotes um, that uh, that show people what it means to live into that value and what threatens that value, that collective value. Um, and then the last thing, the very last thing is the message. And the message relates most closely to action. What do I want people to do? And um, what am I gonna say to get them to do it? So uh, a very quick example um, from two, the two immigration projects that you mentioned in my bio, when we were putting together Shattered Families at, at, uh, at the time we were the Applied Research Center, we, um, the, the main frame on immigration issues was law and order. The, the anti-immigrant right had worked very hard for about 20 years to make that the first thing people would think about when they thought of immigrants. Um, we wanted to shift that frame to family unity. So instead of talking about law and order, we're now talking about families and whether they can be together. Um, the narratives they had were always about immigrants breaking the law. Some of them false, um, you know, like straight lies. Um, the narratives we had were about people fighting to keep their families together. Um, and then the uh, messages they had was end immigration, basically, end legal immigration. Sometimes it was punish illegal immigration, but you know, over the last three years, um, that, that line that restrictionists used to draw between legal and undocumented immigrants has really, really blurred. And it's become very clear that they're just about ending the asylum system and the, and the uh, immigration system. So our message was end mass deportations. The only way you're gonna prevent these family separations is to stop deporting um, hundreds of thousands of people every year. So that should give you a little bit of a sense. When we did drop the I word, again, their frame is law and order. Our frame was human dignity. Their narratives were all about law breaking. Our narratives were all about resisting the um, mischaracterization of our communities and uh, resisting the harm of the I word. Their, their uh, message was, you always have to use the I word. And our message was, take it out of the AP style guide. So um, last thing I want to say on the narratives front is that quite often when I ask people, tell me a story, what they do is give me a description instead. So I'll be working with uh, people on education reform and I'll say, tell me a story about your kid's school. And what they'll tell me is everything that's wrong in the school. There's no toilet paper in the bathroom stalls. They have textbooks from 1985. There are no computers. 
So that's all interesting, but it's not going to grab me like a story. It's not going to um, engage me emotionally unless I'm already there with you. If someone's already with you, you don't have to do all this. But if someone's not totally with you, you really have to do it um, in order to get them. So stories have to have the elements of stories. They have to have characters. They have to have action. Things have to happen in the story and in the course of the story. They have to have a setting so people can locate themselves in a kind of in a physical sense. And they have to have an idea or a moral of the story. So um, when we are thinking about how, are, how am I going to present myself as a character in a narrative shifting story, for example, um, I'm going to want to um, really lift myself as an agent, as a self-determining person, um, I, uh, because that's going to inspire other people to fight like I did. I'm, I'm making this up, but I think you get the idea. We don't want to characterize um, immigrants and uh, poor people and black people uh, and people of color as always victims, even though it's true that terrible things are done to us. We want to put, when we're describing those things, we want to really describe the people who did them to us um, as villains rather than just ourselves as victims. Um, we want to think about what emotion are we, uh, is my story going to evoke? Some emotions are depressing. If I'm really sad, I just want to be in my bed under the covers. I'm not calling anybody. I'm not marching anywhere. Uh, I'm just depressed. So, and we have a lot, a lot of very sad stories to tell. It's really tempting to uh, wallow in it. But what we need to think about is, um, how are we going to generate through our storytelling the hope, the optimism, the courage, um, and the outrage that's going to get people to actually take some action? Um, the, there's a great article you can Google called Stop Raising Awareness Already that speaks to the ways in which our efforts to raise awareness about different issues actually does the opposite of driving people to action, um, makes them feel like nothing can ever change, um, makes them, depresses them. There's a whole thread in that article about how suicide awareness um, campaigns end up causing more suicide because um, they, don't, they don't stress the ways you come out of uh, suicidal ideation, for example. Rather, they talk a lot about um, how depressed people are and how, how likely suicide is. So, uh, so that's my quick and dirty thing. You gotta think about the frame, the narrative and the message last. Um, and you want, um, you want people who are fighting to show up as people who are fighting in, in narrative shifting uh, communication strategies. Thank you so much, Renku. And I'm I'm like madly taking notes, getting questions ready, trying to also listen. So so I love the many hats that I get to be in right now. Um, and so we'll turn to Sejal and then come back for for Q and A. Thank you. Yeah, I I feel like I um, Renku, you need to come do um, a, a, a communications training for my organization. Um, so uh, I wanted to. Um, Thank you for inviting me to be part of this really timely and inspiring conversation with um, voices as powerful and brilliant as um, Dion and Rinku's. And um, so at Just Futures Law, we work to defend and build the power of um, immigrants' rights and racial justice organizers and community groups who are working to disrupt and dismantle our deportation and mass incarceration systems. Um, and you know, we are grounded in movement lawyering. Um, you know, in the in the core value that effective lawyering uh, must serve and align with um, the quickly shifting landscape of movement organizing. Um, and for us, you know, those systems of of um, deportation and mass incarceration are very connected. You know, we very much view the injustices associated with with deportation through a racial justice lens, not just an immigration lens. Um, similarly, you know. We should talk about you know the violence and structural problems with the criminal justice system um, not just as criminal justice problems but as racial justice problems right because ultimately both of these systems 
unjustly separate families, um, not because of what the individuals caught up in those systems have done, um, but because of who they are. Um, you know, and so, you know, echoing um, some of the history that um, Sian went through, you know, we see, you know, we see those connections in the racist roots and history of our policing, right, which originated in slave patrols and enforcing black codes, um, you know, and militias to keep indigenous people off their lands. Um, you know, and in the 1800s, policing was also fueled by hostility to immigrants. You know, for example, um, the anti-immigrant Know Nothing Party swept local elections in 1854 um, in Boston. And, you know, and that's when Boston formally established its first police department. Um, you know, because of anti-immigrant sentiment. And so, um, I mean, I think as most of this audience knows, policing in this country was born of a need to maintain white supremacy, um, you know, rather than in response to evolving um, dangerous conditions. Um, I mean, I think the other thing that's really important to note is that our modern policing system was fashioned on the military. Um, you know, that was the mentality um, you know, they're at war and ICE too was created as part of the US government's response to 9-11. Um, to it was born as this very militaristic agency. Um, and so when you're trained to treat people like a security threat, right, you're not viewing them um, as part of the fabric of our communities, right? You're, you're going to tear families apart. Um, and so given that history, right, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's not surprising that the United States has both the highest incarceration um, rate and the largest immigration det detention system in the world. Um, and, and it is a system that has always just disproportionately targeted, arrested and convicted um, black people, including black immigrants. Um, but, you know, it, it, all, it all just shows that there are these deep connections between you know, for example, the violence that we're seeing at Irwin County Detention Center today, where women are being forcibly sterilized, um, and the long history of violence on all Black, Indigenous, Latinx, Muslim, queer, trans, and, and all people of color. Um, and so the movement to defund the police and protect Black life, um, and the movement to abolish ICE and, and, and um, detention and deportation of immigrant people, right, they should be closely linked. And they are becoming um, increasingly linked. You know, communities are, are seeing the connections and they're using the opportunities to continue to build solidarity and, and lift up their struggles together. Um, but there is still a lot of work to do. Um, and I, and I think as we think through the bold ideas going forward, whether that's in the context of a Biden administration or not, I think it's really important for these two movements and the advisors within these movements um, to come together. Um, in terms of opportunities for cross-movement work, you know, I wanted to briefly mention, I think, three ways where um, Just Futures Law is doing some of this work. Um, you know, and one way is through building intersectional litigation. Um, an example of that is the, is the case of Wilmer Catalan Ramirez. Um, that case started when six ICE agents stormed his house without a warrant. They used brutal force against him and they exacerbated his partial paralysis, um, you know, and they then locked him up. And it turned out that ICE had targeted Wilmer um, because he was in Chicago, the Chicago Police Department's gang database. Right, you know, through the litigation and a future audit, you know, we would come to learn that once you're in this database, you're never notified. Um, two, there's no way to challenge being in the database. And three, there's, there's no way to have your, your name actually removed from the database. Um, we would also come to learn that his name was there, was in the database simply because of where he lived. He lived in a high gang neighborhood. Um, and, and that's why he had experienced that brutal violence. Um, you know, at Wilmer's request, we worked in partnership with um, organizing communities against deportations and devising a legal strategy. Um, OCAD, it's a group of undocumented and unafraid organizers um, who are building a resistance movement against deportations and, and the criminalization of people of color in the Chicago area. And, you know, Wilmer's case ended up becoming the centerpiece of this ongoing campaign called Erase the Database. 
and expanded sanctuary campaign um, by Latinx and non-immigrant Black-led organizing group, you know, including um, Black Youth Project 100, Mi Gente, um, to dismantle the, the gang database. Um, and, you know, once the Office of the Inspector General audited, audited the database, right, we discovered that it contained 134,000 names, you know, 95% of those um, individuals were black and brown. We also learned that the database was error-ridden, like a lot of these databases are, right? Like, I mean, that's what we're coming to learn. Um, there were people listed as zero years old. Um, many people, there was no listed gang, gang affiliation. And despite the fact that the department admitted how error-prone this database was, you know, it turned out it had been accessed more than a million times. Um, by law enforcement officials, um, including more than 30,000 times by ICE. And so it really shows you the power of this very inaccurate racist tool and the devastating impact that it has on black and brown communities. Um, you know, whether that's through immigration enforcement, whether that's through the loss of a job. Um, you know, we eventually settled the case in exchange for securing Wilmer's freedom and um, getting his name out of the database, but the campaign continued. Um, the case was really just a tactic in the campaign. And, um, it, and it was, but the case was important, you know, because it was intersectional. It expanded the sanctuary campaign and it fueled a, an emerging racial justice immigrants rights narrative, you know, that highlights the connections between biased policing and immigrants rights. Um, you know, the case, it, it went on to become a flashpoint in the mayor's election in Chicago um, when there were debates around policing. And, you know, and lastly, it helped revitalize and sustain energy in the immigrants' rights group um, to preserve Chicago's sanctuary city policy. So, you know, the case, and the case had that impact because it was part of a larger campaign and because it centered, you know, the leadership of, and advocacy of Wilmer and, and the partnering groups. Um, you know, I think that's very important. And, you know, we're in the process now of, of building other intersectional litigation that is led by both immigrant and non-immigrant black and brown led groups, um, to, you know, to challenge other types of policing technology. But I, I think, you know, the broader idea is um, that there, there are ways to, you know, showcase how policing techniques target and chill all black and brown communities. Um, while also providing a space for those those groups' individual narratives. Um, and that's really how, you know, the, many of the groups that we work with, that's really um, what they want to see, right? They, they want the fight and the campaign and the litigation to be intersectional. Um, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll mention two, um, you know, two other, um, I think, opportunities for cross-movement work. Um, you know, and one is, is ongoing efforts to end collaboration between ICE and local law enforcement. You know, I think while we work to abolish ICE, we have to continue to disrupt its abusive agenda wherever we can. Um, and the criminal justice system, you know, again, this is, you know, echoing some of what Sion was talking about, the criminal justice system, right? It acts like a funnel into the immigration system. And so whether it's 287G program or secure communities, these programs, they incentivize racial profiling and, and result in the transfer of people from, you know, the criminal justice system to the immigration system. And so, you know, through advocacy and litigation, um, we've partnered with other groups to, to disrupt that collaboration. Um, you know, an example is we've been a very active member of the ICE out of DC coalition um, to end ICE access to the jail and, and the DC council, you know, has passed such a policy. Um, in North Carolina, we're members of of the HB 370 coalition and help and have helped to, to defeat a bill um, that would have required sheriffs to cage immigrants uh, based on a request from ICE, even though those sheriffs were elected on a platform of ending those practices. Um, and in North Carolina, we're, you know, we're also with um, a shout out to Kate with, with the Duke Immigrants Rights Clinic, where um, hoping to build um, additional litigation on, on this um, to, to, you know, to fight against these efforts. Um, and the last thing I'll note is, um, you know, there's room for cross-movement work. 
in terms of integrated policy demands. You know, a number of coalitions platforms now include an immigration component. I think there's this, you know, growing awareness that defunding the police includes ICE, right? And that's become all the more transparent now that DHS has been involved in disrupting and surveilling, you know, the uprising in Portland and DC um, in a non-immigration capacity. Um, and I think a notable example of an integrated platform at the federal level is the BREATHE Act, um, which is a collection of policies pr proposed by the Movement for Black Lives. It's a visionary bill that, you know, divests taxpayer dollars from discriminatory policing um, and invests in alternative methods of of community safety um, and the rebuilding of community holding law enforcement officers accountable. Um, and it includes immigration components, um, a plan to eliminate ICE, to close immigration detention centers, to disentangle local police from federal immigration enforcement, um, and to repeal laws that criminalize border entry, right? I mean, those laws are the most prosecuted federal crimes nationwide primarily impacting black and brown immigrants and were um, you know, originally proposed by, by white supremacy. Um, and so the BREATHE Act is really trying to undo the things that are responsible um, for the mass incarceration of, of immigrants. And that, and that is um, something that Just Futures Law has also been um, involved in as part of a, a coalition. Um, so you know, I'll just end with saying that um, like quoting Michelle Alexander, the injustice of this moment is not an aberration. Um, and so, you know, part of the strategy is recognizing and actualizing that we, you know, we cannot call for reforms that further entrench and um, legitimize policing, I think in any form as a, as a solution to social, um, economic or, or political problems. Um, it's you know it's really it's it's really time to uh, to abolish some of these institutions. Okay, well, thank you all. Um, we have you know a, about ten minutes here, and and we might be able to just kind of trickle into a few minutes more to to finish up some conversations. Um, we've got some questions coming in, and I'll try to sort of give you a bucket of questions, and maybe you know, you'll, you'll find one of, of um, a few here that you want to address. Uh, we collected questions from students in advance, so I want to make sure to, to um, kind of highlight some of those that have come in. Um, so one of the first ones was, you know, speaking to um, what I think is maybe commonly portrayed and understood as sort of tying immigration to exclusively Latinx communities. And one of the, the discussions that you all are reinforcing is, how much broadly, how much more broadly we need to understand um, these groups um, and, and these alliances and the interests that are at stake here. Um, I'm, I'm interested to, to open up to the panel, you know, your perception of whether or not that's true or not, um, and the effect, if you think it is, um, of, of sort of tying Latinx immigrants as sort of the exclusive face of these issues, you know, and, and what has that done to the immigration debate as a whole and some of the broader um, movements to reduce incarceration of black and brown people across the board. I'm happy to take a first crack at that question. Um, I think that uh, the sentiment is correct. We do consistently see that, that immigration enforcement disproportionately affects Black immigrants, yet mainstream media continues um, and policymakers continue to frame immigration as a non-Black Latinx issue, um, which has led to what is, in my opinion, the intentional erasure of Black immigrants from this like larger conversation advocacy work. Um, we know that the police are the first point of contact for most immigrants um, in terms of their later connection with the deportation system, yet the immigrant rights movement, I think, has by and large left the need to confront policing and incarceration to Black organizations and activists on the ground. Um, I think that is shifting in this moment where we're now witnessing, you know, a shift in language and ideology around policing in this country. Um, 
due to, again, as I stated before, generations of tireless organizing work by BIPOC communities, that is um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, um, to dismantle systems that we understand perpetuate white supremacy. So I think that it's really critical in this moment for immigrant rights activists to sort of share the collective responsibility of confronting policing and um, incarceration as a starting point. Um, and I definitely see that happening really rapidly. Organizations are shifting their mission statements, their vision. Um, they are taking tenants from the Black Lives Matter movement and incorporating those policies into the work that their organizations do, um, while also finding space for Black leadership and organizations that um, claim to um, protect Black communities, but that um, the communities that they claim to serve were never reflected in the leadership of their organization. So I think there's a lot of intentional change and movement happening within um, our organizing circles, and I'm really happy to see it. Thank you. Um, Sejal Rinku, did you want to speak to this issue? I can say something quick about it. One thing is that um, the particular positioning of Mexican migrants throughout US history, I think is worth looking at here. Um, May Nye's work, Impossible Subjects, um, dives deeply into that history. And some of what I learned from studying that is the ways in which, for example, in the 1920s, um, after a couple of decades of restriction, there was a backlash against all the restriction and against uh, deportation. So German, uh, um, I mean, undocumented wasn't exactly a thing in those days. The systems were very different in terms of paperwork, but, um, there, there was a thing happening where Germans who had been in the States for a long time, had kids, had businesses, were being deported. And so Congress came up with a solution, uh, a waiver, an exception that you could apply for. But they made it so that you had to go, you had to get out of the U.S. in order to do it. So, um, uh, and I think think that you had to go to the Canadian border for some reason. Um, ba basically, you could come in through the Canadian border, but Mexican migrants were all in the southern part of the US and couldn't get um, go north. Um, so, and because, because so much of this country was Mexico, um, and uh, as, as Mexican-American communities like to say, the border crossed them. There's just a bunch of weirdness and exceptions um, because of the labor needs of the Southwest um, that I think does, it helped me understand a little bit what at least Mexican-American, what the context of Mexican-American um, uh, or Mexican immigration was today. Um, I have a feeling that the right tested different images and the image of a dark-skinned kind of indigenous looking Latino man was the one that ginned up their base hardest. Um, even, even after 9-11 when 9-11 um, was the excuse for tightening up immigration. Uh, you know, we're going to tighten immigration because we want to fight terrorism. Even then, I think other than images of Arab and uh, Arabs and South Asians, um, the, the image of a Latino man was the most motivating. So I suspect that's part of the reason why we um, have this. And um, I think the the key is um, not just to point to non-Latinx immigrants, but to white immigrants. <laughs> I mean, there are a ton of Russians in this country and a ton of Irish people. They never, ever, ever have the I word applied to them. They're never held up as a threat to national security. And um, it's as though either they're all perfectly um, innocent or, uh, we want them, you know, we want them instead of these other immigrants as, as um, uh, the current occupant of the White House likes to say. So 
Um, I, I agree with Sion about the need to um, grow who we're talking about. And I would just suggest that that includes white immigrants um, as well as uh, all of us. So the, the next bucket, and I'm gonna try to do a pretty, you know, put a bunch of stuff together here and you guys can take what you want. Um, so we have a set of questions that's very sort of good law school, like, okay, explain to me how. So if, if we abolish ICE, right? Like who does it? How do we do it? What's there instead? What are sort of the, those, you know, what's on the flip side, you know, of that, of that movement? And I, I think, Sion, you spoke to sort of doing many things at once um, in, in these calls for change. Um, so we have one sort of set of questions that has to do with kind of walk us through, like, what does this mean? What does this look like as, you know, a, as law students? Um, and then another set of questions that I think is related um, that, that does have to do with the political climate and the presidential election, which is that we see, you know, again, this law and order narrative and, uh, and the, the President Trump, you know, accusing Vice President Biden of supporting these efforts and therefore advocating, you know, and not, not fulfilling a law and order sort of agenda. And then in return, Vice President Biden also, you know, trying to um, distance himself from calls to defend um, uh, the police, um, you know, while also sort of saying that, that, while also being tied to immigration policies that incarcerated a lot of people in immigration, um, as well as in the criminal justice system. So, you know, is there, how do you see these, these movements playing out in this moment? Um, you know, and are there voices that you see as um, being very hopeful um, in, in our political discourse, you know, as well? So that's kind of too, like, how do we understand the law and order conversation critically and how it's playing out in the candidate movement, but also some of the mechanics of what happens, um, you know, through an abolish ICE movement, what is there on the flip side? Um, I can talk a little bit about um, the first question, Kate, and others, um, you know, can you know, can add comments. I think, you know, like just in terms of the mechanics, um, I, you know, I think that Congress holds the purse strings, right, and they can they could simply stop funding ICE, um, or they could, you know, they could pass affirmative legislation to abolish the agency. I mean, I, I think ideally that would be part of something much broader, um, like the Breathe Act, which, you know, proposes the elimination of ICE, but also ends a requirement of mandatory detention you know, ends local involvement in immigration enforcement, ends the laws of, you know, prosecute, you know, prosecuting border entry. Because even if we abolish ICE, and if, I mean, as long as we have those laws on the books, they're there. Um, I, I think, you know, and, and the Breathe Act also has lots of affirmative measures about rebuilding, um, investing in communities. I think, you know, outside of those more comprehensive measures, I think, it, you know, in, in terms of thinking about it incrementally, I mean, the key is to not invest money to continue to build up our racist system of, of immigration policing, right, even if it's being dubbed as improvements or reforms. You know, I don't know if the, you know, maybe if, if there is a Biden administration, I don't know, maybe they're going to try to fix ICE, but I, but I think, you know, the strategy really has to be to reduce our investments in those institutions, because otherwise, um, we're again legitimizing the, the power of policing as a, as a solution, um, you know, to social, economic, and political problems. And so, you know, I think concretely that would mean ending the programs that cause the most harm, 287G agreements, which deputize local law enforcement as immigration agents, you know, or, or echoing Marion Cava's call, we'd want to, you know, reduce DHS and ICE agents' budgets by, you know, initially at least by half. Um, you know, I, I think um, in terms of what we have in its stead, um, you know, abolishing ICE is, it's really about demilitarizing our immigration system. Um, and again, di diminishing the political power of policing. 
you know, I myself, I don't have an exact blueprint for restructuring the federal government, but, but, you know, but I also don't need that to know that ICE is an immoral, unaccountable and dangerous agency um, that really should be dismantled. Um, I mean, I think that our immigration policy should be grounded in human rights um, and that we should be building alternatives, right, where we can imagine what our communities actually need to be safe, free, and to live in their um, fullest humanity. And I, you know, I mean, I think that folks have, po you know, have posed a number of solutions around restorative justice, right? They, and they all, they go to the lack of jobs and they go to poverty and they involve investment in education and housing and, and healthcare. And, um, and I'll just note, you know, I think going back to what Rinka was saying, um, and folks are already doing and building those things, right? In this particular moment where the cover the government has chosen, you know, not to provide any sort of protection to people in this pandemic, right? We've seen the rise of mutual aid. Um, and we can take care of each other. And in that sense, um, like abolition is not this far-fetched thing, right? We just we need to make all of those things um more consistent. Thank you. Did either of you, Sienna and Rinku, want to? The only thing I want to say is um, a really important lesson I didn't mention in my communications overview is that you don't want to be repeating the opposition's messages in any form. So if they're saying law and order, you don't want to say law and order at all. You want to talk about safe communities or um, redistribution of resources or um, bringing honor back to the immigration system or demilitarizing um, immigration. Um, I just, I remember this tweet I saw when Trump was saying about a year and a half ago, right, there are caravans coming through Mexico and um, there's a crisis at the border. And I remember seeing an advocate's tweet that just repeated a million times, there's no crisis at the border. All I can think about after that is crisis at the border. So it's really tempting, especially I think for lawyers actually, because you're trained to um, directly address arguments and um, to be straightforward about it. And I'm grateful that you do it, but from a communication standpoint, the more you repeat the other frame, even to dislodge it, the harder it's gonna stick. So, um, so, and that takes some rigor because it's really, it's really automatic. You know, they say law and order, we say Joe Biden's not for defunding the police. Like we just repeated their assertion. So don't do that. And Sienna, did you wanna add anything here? I think Sejal and Ranku covered it perfectly. I don't wanna add more. Okay, so a final question to, to um, sort of go out here, and I want to make sure for um, recording purposes, we get your, your thoughts on this. You know, we have questions from student groups and then coming in from audience members too. Um, what can law students, young lawyers do? You know, we're hearing your conversations about the role of mass mobilization, movement lawyering, you know, some of the shortcomings of traditional legal strategies. So, so what do you see as effective um, forms of action to support these movements and, and specifically for, for lawyers and, and, and law students? Um, okay. So I'm happy to just repeat a sentiment that I shared earlier, um, which is to support the work of um, the abolitionists and the attorneys and the organizers on the ground who've been doing this work for generations. I think that now that um, there's a lot of attention being placed on these movements, there's a desire to um, create something new um, and to some way enter this space um, uh, in a way that perhaps co-ops or downplays the work um, that's really been invested in 
these movements for so long, specifically the work of like black women, femmes, LGBT folks. Um, and so we've seen that happen time and again um, with minority created movements. And so it's just a bit of a cautionary tale against um, what Charles Blow calls cosplaying consciousness um, and making sure that you're not sort of just immersing yourself in the issues of the moment, but really taking um, the education and knowledge that um, folks who have been doing this work for so long have to offer and finding a way to complement what is happening now um, and finding new opportunities for collaboration and working across movements um, as all of us spoke to throughout the panel. Um, I think that's really a valuable way to contribute to what's taking place now. Um, sure. I think, um, I think just be in really close relationship with organizers, make friends and, um, and, um, approach the work with some humility, I guess, is what I would say, because, um, the legal imperatives and the organizing imperatives are not always exactly the same. Sometimes they need some navigation and negotiation. And it's not true that the legal um, uh, strategy is always going to be better than the organizing strategy. Ideally, you want them to hit different aspects of the problem, but, um, but they need to work together closely and um, and it can't be like the lawyers win all the strategy fights. <laughs> Sejal, did you wanna add anything? I know you're very conscious of that too. Um, I mean, yeah, I would just, I mean, I would echo what both um, Rinku and Siana said that, um, you know, I mean, we're an organization that's, that, that's really trying to expand capacity um, around movement lawyering. And, you know, th there is this growing sector of lawyers and legal organizations that are trying to use their skills to build the power of social movements. Um, you know, and I, I think this is a really important um, time in which to be thinking about that, right? If you're, if you're not doing that already. And, and I think, you know, the key is really, um, instead of, you know, viewing yourself or ourselves, you know, lawyers, we often view ourselves as saviors um, we're leading the cause. It's about this case, you know, really, I mean, it's about lawyers seeing themselves as scaffolding under the feet of, um, of these powerful collectives, you know, who are, who are, you know, fighting for the transform, the transformation, transformation of their own lives. Um, so I think it's a, really about creatively using legal, legal tools to build the power of, to make space for, to validate, bolster, defend, um, and protect um, social movements, and you know, it, like in the movements we're talking about right now, right, um, defunding the police and and abolishing ICE, um, and you know that really potentially allows, I think, lawyers and law students to have um, a much larger impact than in any one particular case. Well, thank you all. Thanks for staying a few minutes here um, to, to um, allow me to ask some of the questions that have, that have come to us. And, um, and thank you for pushing me personally and thinking about the ways that um, we as a clinic, me as an instructor can be doing this work um, and, and thinking of our roles differently um, and more broadly uh, and hopefully um, you know, more effectively for these leading movements. I'm really honored to have you with us um, and to have you speak to so many folks here. Um, so thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe to Duke Law Podcasts on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit Duke Law on the web at law.duke.edu.